in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. So if you see me hobbling around, it's because I did a 10-mile run this morning. I, I'm not, you know, they did a marathon this morning. That's not, that's not me, but I did the 10-mile. It was fun. I just went alone. I don't think there was a single human being there that was alone, but I was like, I'm just going to go do this run, you know, as a good excuse to have to train for it some. I was, uh, I was feeling pretty good about the run until they emailed out the stats later, because, you know, you're running and you're surrounded by thousands of people. And then they sent out the stats of where I compared against men my own age, and I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, running, running was never my thing, but it's a good, you know, it's a good exercise. So I saw two signs. This is a bit uh, flippant for me to, to share from, from the pulpit, but I, I saw two signs that delighted me, and I wanted to share them with you guys, because I thought... Uh, they, were, they were hilarious. So the first sign that I saw, uh, hopefully not too many of you are bothered by this, but it said, uh, it held it up large at the three-mile mark, and it said, don't trust a fart past mile four. Is what, <laughs> I'll let you figure that one out. Um, and it was just, you know, you're hitting mile three, and you've got a long way to go, and I saw that, and I just thought, that's, that's great. That's just like, that's just a hilarious thing to read. Uh, and then there was another one that was much more serious and actually very profound for just, what, 10 words or so. It said, there will come a day when you can no longer do this. And you know, running was what we we're all doing. And I just thought, that's, that's beautiful, right? This, this, there will come a day when, when none of us will be able to, to jog anymore. Um, part of me actually thought, well, the day that I couldn't do this was like a month ago because I kind of started training. <laughs> it's a little too late for this. Um, it's kind of a random idea, but I thought it might be fun as Capital City Church to like s- sign up for a run like this. So maybe put it on your long-term radar. Like, if we want to do like a 10-mile run as Capital City Church in a year, that'd be kind of fun. We could sort of team up or whatever. Anyway, keep it on your long-term radar. All right, so I'm really excited. Uh, we're beginning a new series today. It's going to be a long series, so we won't just do it consecutively because it would be too long. So we'll dip in for, you know, three, four, five weeks at a time, and then we'll come out and do mini series on the side to, to kind of get a break from it. Um, and so I'll tell you a little bit more about the series toward the end, but I want to intro it with this, that the question that drove much of biblical history and the biblical narrative, it's, a, it's this huge question, and not many modern people are, are aware of it. If you didn't grow up with any background of faith, you might almost be at an advantage in considering what is this huge question that drives the Bible. If you grew up in a church, you might have been a part of the culture, like I was, of doing a daily devotional time where you kind of, you pick a chapter or two, and you, you know, you open it up, you pull out a verse, you try to find a nugget for the day that sort of helps you, I don't know, spiritually get through the day. And as helpful as this is in some way, it is largely how I learned the Bible, and uh, it, it can be really helpful in helping you learn a lot of Bible verses and little nuggets of truth. In the right environments or in the wrong environments, it sometimes can end up making you, the reader, the focus of what the Bible is supposed to do. It becomes a reader-centered focus of what the Bible is there for. It's like the Bible is there for your inspiration. Uh, Jesus died for your sins. Now, that's true, but it's all about you. It's about becoming self-actualized and in reaching your ultimate happiness and, and picking up just the right pieces from the Bible to sort of be the, auto, or the, the co-pilot for your day. And none of these practices are exactly wrong, but they can kind of lead, a lot of half-truths can kind of lead you in a strange spot. And so in reading, in kind of cherry-picking, which I think can be a part of, of the church's story, a lot of people miss the larger story of Scripture. So the big question, the big narrative arc that the Bible leads us through is, how will God redeem humanity? That's the huge question, is 
how will God, what will God do to fix all of this? And if you, if you get lost in the trees, if you get lost in the chapter, sometimes you miss it. But when you step out and look at the whole forest, you can see these, these plot points. There's a, a grand arc that goes throughout the entire Bible. Some of you have heard me say this before, but I kid you not, it took me well into graduate school to learn this. So you can just, you know, you can just leave grad school aside. You've got it right now. I'm giving you, no, I'm just kidding. But it took me well into my graduate school to learn this. So there are four plot points that largely cover the entire narrative arc of the Bible. So it's, uh, I, it, it helps me to visualize it. So it's creation, fall. So this is how I, I like, people who listen to this later on the podcast won't see what I'm doing. Creation, fall, and then redemption and restoration. Uh, and the Bible takes us largely through creation, fall, and redemption. And then restoration, it, it begins there, but it also points toward a future time when Jesus comes back and will fully restore things, although it's begun now. So all things were created, including us. We fell away, we marred the image of God that was within us. These are the first major plot points, and both of them happen in the first few chapters of the Bible, but they reverberate throughout the whole thing. I would challenge you to find almost just any page of the entire New Testament and not find some allusion to God's creation, his image on us, our fall, our our sort of separatedness from, from God. The next plot point, redemption, is basically the rest of the Bible. Uh, Again, restoration begins with Jesus, and you see parts of it, but mostly redemption is just this long up-ramp that takes the rest of the biblical story. So all goes wrong. Uh, We fall away. God gave us free will. This is a, a longer sermon for a different day, but God gave us free will so that we could truly love him. And sometimes I used to think, and wouldn't it be great if God just, like, made us good followers of him. But then we'd be robots, right? You can make a robot, you can make a computer perform a task, but it's not true. It's just, it's just written to. It's just like you could have a gazelle walk in front of a cheetah and the cheetah will go after it. And it's, it's not choosing. It's just, it's just instinct. It's what it's written to do. So God gave us free will so that if we loved him, it would be truly, that we'd love him truly and follow him truly. But we took that free will, this great tool, and we used it to walk away from him and basically try to become our own demigod in the process. So God begins this plan then for redemption. And what's, what's funny about this is that of the, the four major plot points in the Bible, you've already gone through two of them just in like the first few chapters, and you start plot point three quite early on. It's Genesis 12. So <clears throat> looking back from the future we assume a lot of things. Most people have learned quite a bit by the time they actually go to Genesis 12. So they take a lot of that baggage from the future back into the past. But I challenge you to read Genesis pretending that you don't know anything that comes after it. So almost nobody in Genesis 12, almost nobody knows who God is. They don't even know his name. They don't know his law. That wouldn't come for like five, six, seven hundred years yet. They knew almost nothing about him. So if you're reading straight through, you have the creation, you have the fall, and you have a lot more fall. You have just a lot of mess, you have Babel, you have all this disorder. And then Genesis 12. And the big question lurking over all of this is, well, what in the world is God going to do to fix this? What is he going to do to get us back to this Edenic state? There's no people of God, there's no Jewish line that didn't even exist yet, no chosen people, just a lot of people, just people scattered. Um, I have this this funny story. So the, the Hebrew word for nations or people or Gentiles is goyim. Goy is the word. Im is plural, goyim. And I had this Hebrew professor in graduate school. He was just a, a go-getter, wanted to learn everything. And he, 
you know, Hebrew is meant to be read, but it's also meant to be sung. There's sort of a cantation system that goes with it, and he desperately wanted to learn how to sing it. But the Jewish rabbis, on purpose, do not teach. They, they have never, ever published how you do this. You have to be in the system. You have to be an insider to learn how to sing the Hebrew. And so he went to a, a, you know, a synagogue and just begged, like, can I join your little cohort of like, you know, little like Jewish school kids to learn how to do these cantations. And the rabbi looked at him, I kid you not, and he said, no goyim, no Gentile, no peoples, no Gentiles. This is only for, for Jews. So I always remember that. Uh, so this is all that there was at the time. There were no Jews because Jews were the descendants of, uh, of Jacob. I always have to go, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, so it's here that, we got, that God begins his story of redemption. And, for, and for, uh, for reasons of his own, he often chooses the underdogs, but we don't know that yet. Imagine, you get to Genesis 12, you don't know that he has this, this character of kind of choosing kind of normal, sometimes pathetic characters to bring about these amazing things. You know, over and over in the Old Testament, we see that he doesn't choose the most powerful of a, a whole group of sons. Uh, it's the, the child that gets put in a basket and sent down the river. You know, it's all these sort of these strange hero stories that you wouldn't expect. But we haven't learned that yet. Um, we haven't learned that he has this penchant for bringing children out of uh, barrenness, out of, in, out of infertility he brings life. We haven't learned that he chooses migrants and refugees and sojourners often to do some of his greatest work through. We haven't learned that he asks for huge things, but then often gives even more in return. And so he begins his story of redemption with this one family. Genesis 12, he goes to a Chaldean or Chaldean family, and we've met the Chaldeans once before. If you remember in the series we did on Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of having a fit, and he demands that all of his diviners and magicians and Chaldeans or Chaldeans come and help him interpret this dream. And that's what, that's what this people group is. A lot of them were in this, this world, this system. They lived in southern Iraq, so we would, we would refer to this family that God goes to as Iraqi today. And he chooses this, this family that's in the same spot as a lot of later families that he calls in the Old Testament. A story of barrenness. They were migrants just in the process of moving from basically southern Iraq to northern Iraq. And a lot of people forget this. They were polytheists, as everybody was. So they worshiped multiple gods, mostly uh, animist gods, the things that they could see and name, rocks, trees, the moon. There were no monotheists basically in the whole world. That was something that Judaism brought to the world. It was brand new in the history of the world. The family, their very names were dedications. I haven't told you the names yet. Their very names were dedications to pagan moon gods that they clearly worshipped. Because you don't name your kids after a pagan moon god if you don't worship that god. One name was Terra, which meant sort of a blessing to or from the moon god. Another, which you might be more likely to recognize, recognize is Sarai, Sarai, the wife of the moon god. And the most recognizable name of all was Avram, or in our pronunciation, Abram. Later, we would, call, we would come to call him Abraham, but don't think of him as I'm talking. Don't think of him as Abraham yet. Because with the notion of Abraham comes this sort of canonized, saintly version of like a Gandalf, right? Who is like this like fully formed Jew who sort of could see forward to Christ and all. Like it's just the Sunday school children's book version of Abraham. But that's not who we're talking about here. The truth is he's an Iraqi, a Semite, not really any different from an Arab living in, in, in the area. Uh, he worshiped many gods and especially this set of moon gods. 
And this was, no, this was no surprise to his descendants later. It almost seems wrong to say that Abraham was a polytheist when this story starts because we've sort of, we wanted to canonize him so thoroughly. But Joshua knew this, uh, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred years later. Joshua reminds the Jewish people, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, like over there in Iraq, you know, way east of the Euphrates. Um, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. This is still alive and well in their memory that their ancestors were polytheists. There were no Jews, there was no scripture, just a polytheist in Iraq whose wife wasn't able to, to have children. Which again, as you've heard me say multiple times, this is really bad news in a society where your children were your 401k and your social security plan. And Yahweh, who we will come to know as God, he's a God that Abram hadn't even heard of before and didn't even know it's possible that he went through his whole life not ever hearing Yahweh's name. As far as we know, it, it was later that Yahweh revealed his name, although he might have to Abraham as well. So this name, this, or this Yahweh, whose name he didn't know, uh, calls him. He says, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To go from your country and leave your father's house, today we're just like, oh, adventure, Instagram, you know, timeline, story. I, no, but to go from your, your, your home country and leave your father's house meant to give up your inheritance. It meant to give up everything that you'd come from. They were a fairly well-off family, and uh, this unknown God comes up and says, leave your family, leave your inheritance, and go. He doesn't even say, uh, he doesn't say, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll tell you where, or I'll tell you what the land is. He just says, go, and I'll kind of, I'll show you. What a risk, right? But uh, then he says, but do this, and I will make of you a great nation. So spoiler alert, Abram does it. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he believes it pays off. When a God talks to you, you, you kind of, you do what he says, right? What's crazy is no ancient religion ever makes a claim this big. Follow me, and I will make a great nation out of you. It might be like, follow me and I'll make you wealthy. Follow me and I'll whatever. But follow me and I'll make a whole nation out of you. No other religion claims this. And what's really crazy is that this came true, as did all of the Old Testament covenants. And it's, as simple as it seems, it's really a great defense of the truth of God and the truth of the scripture. That this is the only time in any ancient religion that this was said. And it actually came true. Um, he said he would make Abram's name great. Um, in a few, a, a later promise, a few chapters later, he said that he would give Abram descendants as numerable as the stars. And then that's when he renamed him from Abram to Abraham, which means, uh, I won't get into all the, what Abram means, but Abraham just means the father of multitudes. Um, if you ever hear Abba, that's, that's father, and so the Av root, whatever, I'll, I'll leave it behind. Again, there's a few of you who like that stuff. Uh, <laughs> So what's interesting here is not only does a significant percentage of the world descend directly from Abraham, from one man in the Middle East 4,000 years ago, a ton of the men today. This is, this is crazy. One of, our, one of the people who attends here named Josiah has done a lot of genetics. He's like a geneticist of sorts. You could talk to him more. He'd know the specifics. But men carry a Y chromosome, I think it is, and they're the only carriers and only ones who can pass it on, whereas like the X is always getting uh, mixed and mashed and spliced and cut in all these different ways. But the Y is completely, virtually unchanged from generation to generation. And so you can trace it back 
over just inordinate distances of time and tell who's related to whom, at least on the male side. I think there's another way to do it for women. But they've done really cool stuff like trying to figure out where Christopher Columbus was from because four different countries claim him. And you can just go to all the men in these different European countries that are are named Colombo or something like that, and you can study all their genetics and you can figure out if there was just one root person that all those names came from or if there are a bunch of different families and it helps you narrow it down. Anyway, in the same way, tons of people descend from this one person in the Middle East 4,000 years ago. A lot, the majority of Jewish men today still descend from this one person and a lot of Muslim men as well because of Ishmael and that's a different story for a different day. But a ton of actual living people all descend literally biologically from Abraham. And then all the Christians as well, most of us don't descend directly from Abraham, but we all call Abraham our father in the faith. He is our first ancestor that kind of started this this faith. So roughly speaking, between biological and then ancestors and faith that recognize Abraham as a father, half the world, if you combine those who are Christians, those who are Muslims and Jews, it's it's over half the world that claims descent from Abraham, biologically or in faith. So God really delivered on this. I mean, half the world claims Abraham as a father. Cue the school little kid's song, right? I won't say it. Uh, What's really shocking, though, is reading this as a follower of Christ. This is where we get the second explicit prophecy that seems to point unequivocally to Jesus. So the first is when, um, in this story with Eve, he's saying that your offspring will crush the head of a serpent. Not unequivocal, but certainly a very strong pointing forward to one specific offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. And... uh, let me go on a little side note here. So a lot, of the, a lot of the Old Testament gets lost in this binary, this sort of Jew-Gentile divide. Jews are the in-group, Gentiles are the out-group. But from the beginning, and at this point, Genesis 12, there are no Jews. So Jews are the ones who descend from Jacob, Abraham's grandson. They're just people. And uh, the people fell. So this huge question again is, how will God make it possible for all these people to be restored? And the promise to Abraham is that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not our own line, not just the people who would later be called Jews, but all of the families of the earth, all of the goyim, right? The the people that were later despised by the Jews. These are the people who are going to be redeemed by the offspring of Abraham. Later it says in a different passage, uh, a similar promise to Abraham just a few chapters later, it says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this. In Galatians 3, he says, and let me read this. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul makes this elaborate argument about how Abraham's offspring was chosen to bless all peoples, not just the Jews, but all peoples, long before Jews even existed or was like a denotable tribe of people. He was saying this is, you know, five or six hundred years before the law was even given. This promise already existed that, that some descendant of Abraham would bring a blessing to all families of the earth, all people of the earth. And that, that word isn't the word am, which is the normal respectable word for people. It's goyim. It's like the dirty Gentile word for people, which I just think is awesome that they use this word here because it keeps that sort of like that divide out. It's that like Abraham's going to be a blessing to all, all people. So Paul makes us grasp with this, or, or grapple with this, and grasp that this, this promise was given to all people, not just the Jews. He says at the end of Galatians 3, 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the very first words, the first utterance of God's plan to bring redemption, again, plot point three, the very first words of this plot point three are that he is going to bring redemption to the whole world and that that would come from one specific person, one offspring of Abraham. And that the whole world, whether descended from him or not, would be blessed because of this, sort of restored or at least restoring to an Edenic state. Paul says that in Christ, this third plot point will start meeting the fourth plot point and that both will kind of play out at the same time. So all scripture reading, I don't mean to be hard on like chapter or two a day. That's actually a great way to, you know, to, to do devotions. Uh, all scripture reading is to be encouraged, but sometimes that, that gleaning or that just kind of picking can be, that, that you, gotta have, you have to watch out that it doesn't become too me-focused, um, looking for that nugget of the day or the one thing that you can write down, because sometimes in that you can miss the actual story. You can miss the big plot points or the big picture. So as long as you change it up, even if that stays your bread and butter, if you change it up and occasionally do a longer sit-down and read through the whole, a whole book, or you try to read a summary of a book to get a sense for what the whole story is doing, I mean, if you go through a, a long Old Testament book like Isaiah with 60-some chapters, and you read a chapter a day of that, but you miss some days, come on, yeah, right? We, you miss days. So, so now it's been three or four months just to get through one book, and you just totally lost the thread. It'd be like, imagine watching a movie for three minutes a day for 90 days. Like, you, you'll have no idea what the characters' names are even more, anymore. Um, so in the same way, vary your Bible reading so that you can catch some of these big story, these big story points. Like, I don't know how I missed until graduate school. Like, people were paying for me to go to this school to teach the Bible to others, and I was sitting there like, wait, are you telling me the beginning of the plan of redemption is that someone's going to come and, and, and bring redemption to the whole world? Like, that's actually, it was prophesied that early. It was, it was like part and parcel of the beginning of that message. This is the gospel foreseen by Genesis, by Exodus, by, by Numbers, I'm not sure about Leviticus, but probably if someone really likes Leviticus, you could probably find it in there, in there as well. Um, and now it would be easy to, to take a Sunday school application of this whole passage. Like, Abraham was willing to you know, leave it all behind and bet big on God, and then he you know, got to have his own nation. Like, so you, know, you bet big too and have big faith and you know, prosperity or whatever. It's, just, it's easy to go that route with this. Like, you can just believe harder, and then you can have the great name and, and whatever. But that would be to make the mistake of the chapter before with the Tower of Babel. People were trying to make a great name for themselves, and they, through their idolatry, through their own hubris, were trying to become big on their own, just the work of their own hands. And God frustrated all that and said, no, I'm the one who makes your name great. And then he chose this kind of mediocre, regular old dude in southern Iraq and said, all of the blessings upon the whole world is going to start happening through this family, but I will make it happen, not y'all. Um, y'all is so good sometimes, you know, the second person plural. Sometimes you read the King James and you just think, ah, oh, they still had it then. They still had the second person plural and we just, we don't. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so I don't want us to lionize Abraham. Just a few verses after this passage, you know, people try to turn him into this Gandalf character, but just a few verses later, he goes to Egypt during a famine. I also find that funny. It's like, here's your land and for your ancestors, and there's a famine. Right away, it's like, there's a famine. Well, I gotta go, I gotta go to Egypt, because this land that I was just given by this god is like, I don't know, there's a famine, so I'll go to Egypt. Um, so he goes to Egypt, 
And uh, he, he passes his wife off as his sister because he's afraid of Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks his wife is beautiful, wants to basically bring her into his, you know, his, uh, not castle, what's the word, like his, 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 his uh, kingdom, his, his harem. And um, Abraham, I mean, some man, right? Talk about biblical manhood. He's like, ah, that's my sister. You know, he's like worried about getting, <laughs> worried about getting hurt. Like a chapter later, Lot, his nephew Lot gets taken and he goes to war. It's like Liam Neeson, Taken style. He hunts him down with a whole band of dudes to like kill everyone and get his nephew back. But Pharaoh wants Sarah and he's like, that's just my sister, you know. I mean, so he is not—he's not like this this lionized character that we can turn into a saint. He's—he's um, he's not Gandalf, you know. He's not this Yoda or whatever. He's just a regular person. He does have incredible faith, and he is to be lauded for that. But he has some real issues as well. He's kind of heroic. He's also kind of cowardly, kind of like you and me, right? Um, but God's plan isn't to make us. If we're like Abraham in any way, we have to remember that God's plan isn't to make us famous. He's not, he's not just trying to find a way to make us a nation. He did that in order to bring redemption to the world. He made us in his image. He planned to redeem us from the beginning of creation before we were ever born. And the Old Testament resounds with this promise, this, this story. And the entire Bible, I'd say from Genesis 12 and onward, it's driven with this motivation to redeem all people. Some books and some characters seem to lose sight of this, and sometimes you can lose the thread. Again, if you spread a movie out over 90 days, you can lose the thread. But the entire Old Testament drives toward this purpose. So I want to encourage you not to miss the forest and the trees. The whole story is the redemption of God's people, which are all people. His plan was always to redeem the world and to redeem you specifically. He wanted to draw you near by the sacrifice of Jesus or some kind of work, as far as you know, as Genesis 12, some kind of work on the, of the offspring of Abraham. And we know, looking back from the future, it's hard not to see Jesus in that, that God had been planning this forever. He started with Abram, this polytheist, Chaldean, Iraqi immigrant, very good with business, but kind of shrewd to the point of deceitful, faithful, but also cowardly. And it's not that unlike any of us, you know, pretty good regular people with some, some good uh, things to commend us, but also some things that we might not put on social media to just like blare for the world, right? But this is the beginning of the story of redemption, and it ends in Christ. Um, we're going to follow this story. So now is Abraham, and we'll go through some of the life of Abraham. It's a little shorter message today. We'll st we're starting with Abraham, and we won't just do, do this straight, because I think it would take about nine months, but we will dip in and out in order of what they call the, the patriarchs, basically the main you know, Jewish fathers of the faith here. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, later Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. We'll take breaks. We'll do different series. We'll do uh, calendar-appropriate stuff. We'll be in the New Testament whatever. But for the next, I don't know, six to 12 months, these, this will be one of the main backbones of what we do, is walking through the actual formation of what did it look like to build this plan of redemption for the people of God, and what would it, what, how did that point forward to Christ? So that's what we're going to be doing. Let me pray to close us, and then I'll invite Matt Brown up to, to do one last worship song for us. Lord, we, we thank you so much for the example of Abraham. Um, we pray that we would be able to follow the example of faith that he has set, but also not to lionize him, not to, to make a saint out of him. Help us realize that you work through very ordinary, somewhat heroic, but also cowardly people 
who we wouldn't necessarily commend even to our friends, that you work through these people in order to bring incredible redemption on the world. We thank you for, for your plan, Lord, for your sovereignty and knowing how it was all going to work out, and for picking this strange guy from southern Iraq in, in order to start this story. We pray, Lord, that you would use this story to bless us, just as through Abraham we are all blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at CapitalCitySt.Paul.com. Our music today, Slow Burn, was written and produced by Kevin McLeod under the Creative Commons 4.0 license.